Yes, so right after the 2016 election, people in Seattle were pretty stunned. This is a very democratic city, very blue-leaning city. And November 9th, 2016, everything felt dead. Monica Guzman is digital director at Braver Angels, the nonpartisan group that promotes cross-partisan dialogue to strengthen our democracy. After that, a lot of the conversations that I'd be a part of at networking events or dinners with friends invariably turned to politics. Oh no, not politics. But fortunately, Monica's out with a great new book, I Never Thought of It That Way, on why political conversations across the divide are not only possible, but also important and rewarding. And then it would start to creep toward the people who voted for Trump. And it was right about there that I would feel like that was my cue. And so (laughs) I would say, well, my parents are Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump. And that stopped conversation. That conversation stopper is our conversation starter on this episode of The Purple Principle, podcast about the perils of polarization. I'm your host, Robert Pease, primed to learn from Monica Guzman. She has lived with us first time politics at home with her parents and worked to bridge that chasm at Braver Angels and as a journalist. Let's kick things off with an obvious question borrowed from her new book, I Never Thought of It That Way. Once Monica stopped those conversations at those very blue Seattle get-togethers, did anyone ask her, Monica, why are your parents Trump supporters? Yeah, I would say something like 60 to 70% of the time, someone would ask why. But most of the time, it wouldn't happen right there with the bigger group. It would be somebody finding me later. And some of the times, yes, it would be people who already knew me. But plenty of times, it was actually almost an icebreaker so that I would get to know somebody new. And they would go, hey, you know, I I saw that you you said that about your parents. I'm I'm really curious, just wondering... Why did they do that? But again, it didn't always happen in the big group. When it did, that was really interesting. (laughs) Because I saw it as my opportunity in a lot of situations to represent a kind of person that a lot of my friends just either didn't know at all or didn't really have a close relationship with. So I felt I could humanize, I could flesh out (laughs) at least two of these people. Yes, well, we don't get many choices in our elections in this country compared to almost every other Mm -hmm. democracy. But I'm curious about your parents' political philosophy. Probably to you, it wasn't such a surprise that they voted for Trump based on previous conversations and previous voting, right? Yes, but. (laughs) So we are Mexican immigrants. We became citizens in the year 2000. I was 17 in high school, so I was automatically naturalized when my parents were naturalized that year. And that was the year where I came home one day and plopped down my backpack and looked up and saw a Bush Cheney sign over my mother's desk. And that was the first time that I thought, oh, they're Republicans. They're really Republicans? So I wasn't surprised that they would be conservative or Republican. But I personally, during the 2015 presidential campaign, was very surprised to see them both support someone as unconventional and, to me, concerning as Donald Trump as a candidate. 
We're going to get them out. We're going to secure the border. And once the border is secured, at a later date, we'll make a determination as to the rest. But we have some bad hombres here, and we're going to get them out. My father was actually pretty gung-ho for him from the beginning. I know a lot of Republicans and conservatives who sort of ended up at, well, you know, I would have rather Ted Cruz or Rubio or whoever, but sure, fine, Trump, right? Better than the alternative. But my dad was actually all in on Trump. Well, how much of his all in on Trump do you think is truly pro-Trump and how much is more anti-liberal? Yeah, I would say most of it really is pro-conservative platform, pro-Republican platform. The pro-Trump piece, I'm more confident saying is, is in my father than my mother. And one anecdote that he told me to help me understand his support for Trump has to do with the TV show House, which was popular in the early 2000s. House is a show about a diagnostic doctor who is brilliant and can figure out these mysterious ailments in people and save their lives. But in the show, he's so mean and breaks all the rules. Infectious disease and nephrology. I'm also the only doctor currently employed at this clinic who's forced to be here against his will. That is true, isn't it? But not to worry, because for most of you, this job could be done by a monkey with a bottle of Motrin. Doesn't respect any of the bureaucracy in the hospital, makes everyone around him completely aggravated and drives them crazy. But... He stands up for the patient and he saves them at the end of the day. And my father looked at the government of America and, I mean, all he saw was something so dysfunctional. And the way he saw it, politicians are so false all the time and they don't really say what they mean, ever. And we put up with a lot of it for reasons that he can't understand. So in some ways, Trump was his house. Trump was his you know what? Someone's got to go in there and shake things up. Well, he certainly shook things up on January 6th. Yeah. In the book, I talked about a conversation we had had in October of 2020. So that was before January 6th. But it was after Trump had said that he, where Trump had uh, refused to ensure that he, of course, would respect the peaceful transfer of power after the election. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand that, but people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very very peaceful... There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. And uh, that night, my father came over to help my kids get through pandemic remote school, and so... Then it was time for dinner, (laughs) and instead of making dinner, which I was supposed to do, I talked to my dad, and I really thought that night, after what Trump had said, that this would be the line. This would be where my dad would say, okay, yeah, sure, I get it. You know, that I can't stand. And he didn't. (laughs) He didn't. He didn't. And it was such a tricky conversation. Yeah, well, we are a podcast about political polarization, so naturally we love your description of political polarization as the problem that eats other problems. The monster convinces us that monsters are us. So when did you come to that realization? It was when when I became a journalist in Seattle. Earlier than that, I did have sort of a deep-seated conviction that a lot of the problems in this world come down to people not understanding each other. 
it's one of the reasons I went into communications to begin with, because I felt this is a place where maybe I can make a difference. This feels important. This is how I'm going to try. <laughs> but yeah, it was around and after the 2016 election in particular, where I look around at my city. My city is amazing. I love Seattle. I dedicated the book to Seattle. It's so full of energy and creativity and intelligence and education. And so to go around this city and to hear people say things about people they didn't understand, whose decisions and paths and political views they didn't understand, that were so sometimes dehumanizing and so false, so stereotypical, but but seemingly unaware of that. It it I understood it and I empathized with it from the sense of we all, you know, like to bond with each other, especially in times of stress. This is a very blue place, and it certainly feels good to bash, you know, the enemy, bash the other side. That I get. But it really felt like it was getting in the way of everything that we actually want. Yeah, well, you describe an interesting cross-partisan gathering, the Melting Mountains Gathering, which was an urban-rural gathering between Sherman County and King County in the book. I believe it was through your Evergrey publication at that time, not a Braver Angels event. Right. But tell us about that experience and what you personally learned from it. Yeah. So right after the 2016 election, I had just started, uh, co-founded a newsletter called The Evergrey here in Seattle, still going strong. And one of our core values was curiosity. So after the election, our readers were saying, you know, we want to be curious about everything going on, but honestly, I don't know any Republicans or... I know Republicans, but I don't know I, what what sits in my mind is the kind of Republican who was all for Trump, you know, maybe more rural, just a completely different lifestyle. I'm sitting here in the big city. We came across an interactive in the Washington Post website where you could plug in your county in the United States and it would spit back out the county nearest yours that voted exactly opposite you in the presidential election. And that turned out to be Tiny Sherman County, Oregon, 1,700 people on land that's 10 times the size of Seattle, totally agricultural, just miles and miles of beautiful wheat fields. So we ended up asking our readers if we could find a way to visit, would you be up for that? And a bunch of them were like, yes, yes, yes. So then it was just some strange sort of cold calls and Googling and finding I remember the phone call with a woman in her 80s named Sherry, Sherry Caseberg, who, you know, wrote a very little like blog for Sherman County, but knew everybody and her on the phone, me stammering out this idea for some kind of exchange and her saying, that sounds like a lovely idea. And that just set it all off. So that day, as far as what we learned, we learned, speaking from the liberal point of view, we learned what we were missing. There's one woman, Laura, who I talked to quite a bit, who has the typical experience of many of the people who went down from Seattle that day, which was being locked into this assumption that if people oppose what I support, they must hate what I love. So she voted against Trump because of all these things that she found just absolutely essential, including, you know, rights for LGBTQ folks and things around climate change and the environment. So... The thing that that trip really did for everyone who was part of it, including the folks from Sherman County, was get curious about other people with other people. 
It's something that's getting harder and harder to do in these United States, as the blue zip codes get bluer and the red zip codes get redder and people disinvite each other from Thanksgiving. You know, all these opportunities that we had to hold that glue between difference, we are eliminating, and that's tragic. We're talking with Monica Guzman about essentially field trips between red and blue zip codes. That's just how polarized we've become as a nation. Which reminds me of our season two guest, Dr. Ryan Enos of Harvard University, a political geographer. He's literally mapped out our hyperpartisanship and confirms, yes, there is a huge blue urban versus red rural divide in the U.S., but also Americans are separating on political lines much more precisely than that. And what surprised us even more is if you go down to even smaller levels in those cities, if you go down to neighborhoods within the same city, you'll see that Democrats and Republicans tend to separate from each other a little bit, even within the same neighborhood. They don't live in the same places. When people live separate from each other, but close by, it really increases these feelings of animosity. And it seems like we have that going on between partisans, even in neighborhoods. And that is really unhealthy for our democracy. Braver Angels is a group working to facilitate dialogue and understanding across those divisions, geographic, social, and political. But that's a really tricky thing to do. Our previous guest, Dr. Peter Coleman, director of the Difficult Conversations Lab at Columbia University, he shares this cautionary observation about some attempts at cross-partisan dialogue. I started to be approached by some journalistic organizations that were doing matching of people from on different sides of an issue and asking them to go off and have a cup of coffee or a drink and a conversation and meet each other. But there are certain conditions under which intergroup contact helps. And there are many conditions that don't. And unfortunately, some of the organizations that are encouraging people to get together, particularly without facilitation for short periods of time to focus you know, immediately on their differences, these things backfire. We played that Peter Coleman insight for Monica and asked for her thoughts related to the trip she described of Seattle liberals to politically red Sherman County, Oregon, and also of the nationwide efforts of Braver Angels to facilitate those important but difficult conversations. No, I think Dr. Coleman is spot on on a lot of those things. I mean, the thing we worked hardest on in Sherman County was precisely that. What amount of structure, what kind of structure is going to make this work? I was particularly scared of a sense of voyeurism, right? Where, oh yeah, let's go and, and, you know, just see them and look at them and just kind of ask our questions in a condescending way and then leave. So I remember a few things. You know, one was that the first question when people paired off that they asked each other was, what is your favorite childhood memory? And they would take turns answering that question with each other. And of course, we had very intentionally a meal together and casual conversation that was not about politics before we even got to politics. And in fact, one of the biggest criticisms of the event from the people who were there was how it seemed like we barely scratched the surface. We didn't, there were so many things they wanted to talk about they didn't get to. Too bad. We had three, four hours there and half the time was warm up. Because you need it. You got to build that level of trust. So yeah, I, I do not believe in throwing together people 
who are on either side of a divide with a lot of distrust, you know, no relationship and no structure. At Braver Angels, there is always structure in our workshops. Braver Angels was co-founded by Bill Doherty, a very well-known and renowned marriage therapist. So the methods come from marriage therapy and they work. They're really good. So we have, for example, our program called one-to-one conversations, which anyone can sign up for online. And with those, you do get paired up for virtual meetings with someone on the other side of the divide, but there is a structure. There are materials that you look through. There's commitments, you know, that you tacitly make, you know, to make sure that you're not going in just to beat someone over the head with something to try to win. Yeah, well, it's certainly a fascinating part of the book, but you also talk about social media. And isn't that an even more difficult challenge where people can easily log on, take a few swipes and log off? Mm. Well, I think there's a key thing that you don't get when you're reading retweeted tweets. You don't get the person. You just get the idea. And in those spaces, we have gotten to a place where we, it's entertainment to... Yeah, get, you know, hear what the other side thinks, but to mock it, just to see how absurd it is. When you don't have the person or something to connect to underneath that idea, I don't think that going outside your silo means let me merely be exposed to other ideas. Let me go look at the Fox News page every now and then, you know, if you're liberal, or go to the New York Times if you're conservative. You go to the New York Times if you're conservative and you do it in that way, You're just going to affirm how awful you think this point of view is because you're doing it from a surface level place without any actual connection or reason to build trust. So that's one of the reasons that in my book, I talk about the importance of actual human interaction. The internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people. And so what we need to do is counteract that by having more, more actual interactions with actual people, getting curious about each other with each other. There is this problem, uh, false equivalence on certain topics. It's falsely equivalent to say that you're getting a viewpoint from Fox News, an anti-vaccine viewpoint, when it's actually negating the science behind the vaccine. And it's equally false to say New York Times is promoting a pro-virus, a pro-vaccine viewpoint. It's a scientific fact. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that, yes, people are entitled to their views, but, you know, to quote Daniel Moynihan for the 10,000th time, they're not entitled to their own facts? Uh Uh-huh. Right. Interesting. Well, I think about experts and I think about the nature of experts. When I think about the vaccine, I go, yeah, there's medical experts, there's social scientists, there's experts who can inform about the efficacy of the vaccine, the likelihood that it is perfectly safe, all those kinds of things. But I will say this, I don't know that there's an expert out there about how exactly our society should adopt, distribute, do the campaign around communicating the vaccine. That's the piece that I think divides us because for the folks for whom, you know, trust of the medical establishment is really intact, then yeah, you know, the fact that they are medical and scientific experts extends to, well, they're also experts on our society and what we should all do. I'm going to give them that authority as well. But I think there's plenty of folks who don't see them as experts in that. Someone who studied medicine didn't study society, (laughs) you know? And in fact, I mean, 
There's been a lot of admissions on across the political spectrum that the communication around the vaccine could have been better and could have been more responsive and honest to the concerns that were truly out there. So it's true. The facts are there about the scientific efficacy. But at the end of the day, people's adoption of something like this is going to rely on trust more than facts. And it's going to rely on who's, you know, who, who they think is actually qualified to tell them what to do. And that's just a different set of problems. Yeah, well, this almost becomes a philosophical question now. And you have an interesting, I never thought of it that way moment with the philosopher David E. Smith in your book, where he presents the idea that we don't choose our opinions. People don't choose their beliefs the way they choose their behavior. Whatever you believe about abortion and the death penalty and God and global warming, you didn't just sit around your living room one day and decide to believe it. Beliefs emerge within us automatically as we live our lives and expose ourselves to all sorts of influences. Yes, and that blew my mind. When I heard him say it, it just, you know, <laughs> I was maybe on the edge of that myself. And when he said it, it just, ah, of course, like so many things made so much sense. I talk in the book a little bit about the example of my husband and his love of Star Wars. So he watched the prequels as a kid, you know, many times in the movie theater. His grandmother gave him a life-size replica, like an official one of Yoda, and it still scares small children from our rec room downstairs. He has a lifelong love of Star Wars. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Now, I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation. It was basically my ethics class to all of humanity. It taught me so much. I have, uh, we named our son, his middle name is Riker for uh, William T. Riker, commander of the USS Enterprise. Maybe if we felt any loss as keenly as we felt the death of one close to us, human history would be a lot less bloody. But I could try to talk Jason into acknowledging that Star Trek is better than Star Wars for the rest of my life, and it will never happen. Because he, it's not just our opinion that one is better than the other, and our disagreement on that is not something that we can argue with reason and syllogism. Our experiences led us to those views. The meaning that Star Trek has for me and that Star Wars has for him goes down through years and years of his life. So I say in the book, we don't see with our eyes, we see with our whole biographies. So we arrive at our opinions as a result of our experiences. And this is a hard thing for us all to accept. But every time that we go online or that we talk to somebody thinking, all right, here in my hand, I am holding the reason. This is the reason that I believe what I believe in this political issue. It's a very powerful reason for me. So all I need to do is hand it to you and then you'll agree with me. And sometimes we act as if that's how it works. But it's not how it works. It's like the tip of the iceberg thing, right? The opinion that we see about the person is just above the surface. Underneath is everything that backs it up, all their experiences. You're not going to change someone's mind in the course of a conversation unless they were already at the cusp of changing it on their own. You know, unless their life was already pushing them in that direction. 
So it's um, understanding that we don't choose our opinions, that we arrive at them through the course of our experiences, allows us to have compassion for people who's who are in the course of changing their minds or or are extremely resistant to changing their minds because it feels like they're changing their whole identity. And in a way, that's what you're doing. And that really points us to the title and main theme of your book, Monica, and your acronym for it, Intuit, not to be confused with the software company. Yes. So tell us about an Intuit moment. Yes. So the title of the book is I Never Thought of It That Way because one of the fun ways you can think about how to become more curious is to tell yourself to chase down more I never thought of it that way moments. And those are moments where you think or say, huh, I never thought of it that way. But an I never thought of it that way moment, it, it basically plants a seed in your mind. You don't know if that seed will later get pulled out of the ground, you know, or if it's just kind of sprouts just a, a new perspective on something. So... Yeah, so that's what an I never thought of it that way moment is, and I shortened that to Intuit moment. But it's, th- it's those moments, as I've paid attention to them, I've recognized a sensation. There's a physical sensation to me that others, you know, will say that they feel as well. Some people kind of, you know, they even like gasp. We can actually tell when a thought has <gasps> shocked us. And our language has it too. Something clicked. It dawned on me, you know, as if a light is coming up. But for so many of these things, awareness is really the first step. And we haven't really trained ourselves to be aware of when a thought comes in and surprises us. But the way to chase more of those kinds of things down is to be exposed to different perspectives. Because those are the ones that can make you take something that you had seen in perhaps a two-dimensional way, but you talk to someone with a different perspective and it will gain a third dimension. And you'll be able to turn it like a prism and see it from a different light. Maybe that light will be a bit more purple, or at least not so angry red or patronizing blue. And that's where less partisan, more indie-minded Purple Principle listeners can make a difference, not just in voting, but in conversations like those described by Monica Guzman. You learned a lot from her in this episode, the importance of these cross-partisan discussions and experiences, the surprising Dr. House-like appeal of Donald Trump to Monica's own father and many millions of other Americans, but also the seemingly unending quest for intergalactic supremacy between Trekkies and Star Warriors. May the Force be with them as they live long and prosper. Our full interview with Monica will soon be a premium episode on Apple subscriptions and Patreon. And Monica's recent book, I Never Thought of It That Way, is highly recommended. She successfully recreated her own engaging voice and tone throughout these pages, weaving personal anecdotes with professional experience and important research. We'll also hear from Monica on a different, though related topic next episode, the first in our two-part series on diversity among Hispanic voters this 2022 primary season. Are many Hispanic Americans just plain uncomfortable with both major parties and therefore naturally independent? We'll hear from former Miami Congressman Carlos Curbelo. I think that's right. Obviously, there are exceptions, but more recent immigrants don't have those generational commitments to to political parties. So they're kind of up for grabs. And certainly Latino immigrants are, you know, in terms of large groups, the most recent immigrants to the United States. I think 
Latino voters need to be met uh, where they're at. And Northwestern University scholar and frequent New York Times and Atlantic contributor, Dr. Geraldo Cadava. And so I think what needs to happen is just a, a fundamental rethinking of how parties and campaigns approach Latinos and talk to Latinos in a way that really takes seriously their political positions and what they say they believe about any number of issues from home ownership to immigration to jobs to education. Along with other guests speaking to the great diversity of experiences and political views among Hispanic Americans. We hope you'll join us then. Share us on social media, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or at ratethispodcast.com slash purple. This is Robert Pease for the whole Purple Principle team. Original music from Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production. <laughs>